From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. We've got three of the four of us here today coming to you via Zoom. Usually allows us to get all four, but sometimes we lose a little somebody. Eric Bradlow is out and about doing Eric Bradlow things. He will be back. This is Kate Massey hosting today with Audie Weiner and Shane Jensen. We are recording on Tuesday afternoon, as we usually do. And we're going to open the show as, again, we usually do, at least the last two years. We've been opening with the segment on COVID, trying to make sense of this thing. It's helped, it's helped me, I know, to talk to you guys every week for the last two years, processing studies, talking about decisions in our lives. Uh, and every now and then, to really help things out, we bring on a true expert in the field. And today, we're glad to welcome back to the show, Dr. Lauren Ansel Myers. Lauren, good afternoon to you. Thank you for being here. It's great to be here again. Thank you. Dr. Myers has been with us before. We talked to her last May. She is the Cooley Centennial Professor of Integrative Biology and Statistics and Data Sciences at the University of Texas at Austin. She's also a member of the Santa Fe Institute External Faculty. She's her PhD is in biology. She studied computational evolutionary biology and shifted to computational epidemiology. And she's been at the f- forefront of making sense of this thing from the beginning. And she runs the forecasting effort at the University of Texas. They really doubled down on that when the epidemic hit. And it's been right there at the forefront of everything. We've been the work that's been going on out there. Anyway, Lauren, good to see you. Thanks for being back with us. We haven't talked with you in eight months or so, something like that. One of the things we've, we've been interested in hearing from people like yourself, who, are, who this is really the work you're doing, is how are, what are you thinking about right now? What are you worried about now? What are you trying to make sense of now? What is cutting edge for you on this thing as of January 18th? Yeah, well, I mean, I think we're worried about what everybody's worried about right now, which is this, this Omicron surge. Um, you know, even though it looks like we may have peaked in parts of the country or maybe peaking soon, we still have a lot of strain. We're going to experience a lot of infections, a lot of hospitalizations, a lot of deaths as we kind of come down on the backside of this wave. And so, you know, worried about just how our, how our healthcare system is going to fare over the next few weeks and, and worried about people who are high risk, who uh, may see the peak and relax and, and really the levels of, of risk and potential for exposure are still going to remain high for many weeks going forward. I'm hearing you say worried, worried, worried. It feels <laughs> different this time because the last time we were worried about a peak, well, the first time we were worried about a peak, everybody got obsessed with flattening the curve. Mm-hmm. And it feels a little bit like we've just kind of, we've kind of given up on our hopes of flattening the curve. And now we just want to understand how big is that curve going to be? How bad is the consequence going to be? Is that fair or is that too fatalistic? Well, I think, I mean, I think it's, it's, true in the sense that, you know, well, depending on where you live in the country, you've, you've gone through three waves before you experienced Omicron and, and all three of those preceding waves, spring of 2020, uh, winter 2021, maybe Delta more recently, all three of those were curbed by changes in policy and changes in behavior, you know, to, to some extent or another, or to a lessening extent through time, we dr- did try to, to flatten the curve. And we're just really not. I mean, with a few exceptions, we're just really letting Omicron blaze through our communities throughout the country. And so um, I don't know if I'd call it fatalistic, but it's just it is what it is what we're experiencing now. 
And, mm-hmm. um, and so our, when we're making projections, um, we're basically assuming no behavioral change or very mm-hmm. little. Wow. That was, that's interesting in and of itself, because it, it feels like one of the first things epidemiologists, epidemiologists learned in this pandemic was to put more behavioral into their models. Yeah. And now you're saying, well, that was true for a while, but behavior is kind of cemented. And so we don't have it as an unknown in our models anymore. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I mean, noting with, go ahead. sorry, it's just worth noting with those several of the first previous waves that um, we didn't have vaccines back then. And so, you know, one obvious behavioral change that we have had for the last wave or two um, is getting vaccinated. So, I mean, you know, it's not like people have stopped caring or stopped behaving, you know, you know, stopped modifying their behavior due to COVID. One obvious thing is that a lot of people have gotten vaccinated. So um, how much do you kind of think that the behavior modification is necessary on top of basically getting that, you know, 75% of the population or whatever being vaccinated? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're absolutely right. That is, um, we are still thinking hard about behavior. And this is one of the really important inputs into our models right now is not only how many people have gotten vaccinated, but when did people get vaccinated? Did they get their booster? How recently? All of that influences the transmission dynamics of the virus. And we were constantly updating, you know, and recently when we're trying to project Omicron. Um, So, you know, behavior is absolutely still important and it's still something that we are struggling to get right in our models, um, you know, as we're, as we're facing changes in behavior and changes in Omicron. But, but I guess the, um, your question about, you know, is, is behavioral, are the other behavioral modifications still important, even as we continue to increase the number of people who've been vaccinated and boosted? And and the answer is a hundred percent. Yes. I mean, when you look at what's happening in our emergency rooms and our ICUs and our hospitals, I mean, they are overflowing and they're overflowing with people who could have potentially protected themselves from infection if they had taken these other behavioral precautions. Right. Mm -hmm. And so and we're still like I said, we're still our hospitals are still going to be experiencing strain for several weeks. People who are high risk for severe diseases are still going to potentially you know, face risks of exposure over the next few weeks. So, you know, now is the time when when the numbers are so high in our communities. Now is the time to be a little more vigilant about wearing face masks to use testing, although it's imperfect, but to use testing as a way to safeguard uh, going to school, going to work, you know, getting together. And so, so that while the risks are high, this is when we should be taking steps to protect, especially people who are, who are high risk and vulnerable. So I hear the should, and I understand the should, and I just realized just in talking with you, how, and I'm going to, I am going to go with this word, how fatalistic I am about people's behavior. It feels like we've changed the people we're going to change. We've equipped the people with tools that are available. And it's now it's that the opportunity for persuasion is over. Yeah. Is that, is that too cynical? Do you think, do you think we're changing anybody's behavior at this point? Yeah. Um, I, this is a conversation for a behavioral scientist really. And I mean, I think, I think one of the questions is how do we more effectively communicate risks and how do, you know, and how do we kind of balance uh, the costs of, of, of taking precautions or the perceived costs, all these things. And how do we more effectively get people to change their behavior? I think, you know, I don't know what the right way to do it is, but I think in the short term, we should still be trying our very best to get Mm -hmm. people who are high risk to take precautions and, you know, to get boosted in the longer term, you know, as we think about living with COVID maybe in a, in a post pandemic in its post pandemic existence, as we think about how do we mitigate the risks of influenza and other things that kill people on an annual basis. 
I think, you know, there's COVID has been a real wake up call for how do we like really understand better um, what kinds of health communication lead to uh, pro-social and, and sort of beneficial changes in behavior. So let me, let me, let me follow up on, on Kate's question and then ask another one. The observation is that people are going to, people who are going to change, are not going to change their behavior. They've decided what they're going to do. And there's really not very much messaging going to change that. But there's two things to add to that. Second is that there's a general perception, at least here in the hospitals at Penn and around the, in Bryn Mawr and some of the areas nearby that I've talked to, that the vast majority of the people in critical or in serious condition in the hospitals are unvaccinated, which generally means the people feel, well, you know, you had every opportunity. And in fact, I've, I spoke to a doctor the other day who essentially said, I sat down where with someone saying, just, you know, telling me that's not COVID because it's not COVID's not real. <laughs> and, you know, you're never going to get someone to, to, to take the vaccine. But that leads me to the real question, which is yet the only people in our communities who are generally um, taking the most serious and most um, straining preventative measures are the people under 18 because we can control them. So our schools are still masked, still distanced, still eating outside, still doing all these things. And that varies by geography, of course. Um, and yet, and that's because we can force them. Yet the adults, the same adults, when you take them out of their school, the teachers, the staff, the administrators are going to weddings and going to parties and going to bars and going to sporting events as if it's, it's nothing. And, and to me, it just seems like, in, and I'm going to use a straight word, insanity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, so let me, I'm not sure what the question is, but let me say, first of all, that, um, that it is true that the majority of people in ICUs and severely ill in the hospitals are, uh, are, are not vaccinated, but not the vast majority. I mean, there are a lot of people in our hospitals who are, and even in our ICUs and even on ventilators who have been vaccinated and even boosted. And so there are people who it, I think, are willing to take precautionary behavior that maybe were sort of felt falsely comfortable with their level of protection that that the vaccines afforded them. And so I think that it is important to continue to messaging to to people who who are flexible in in kind of behavioral modifications that now is the time to take those kinds of precautions. Um, I, you know, I think that you're right. I mean, the we are able to, at least in some parts of the country, not all, um, uh, enforce certain kinds of behavior in children, but not when they go home or not, you know, the adults in the school. And, and the, and the important thing, you know, right now, really in the Omicron surge is, you know, we're, we're not really, we're, we're almost at the peak. So we're not going to make a huge dent. We're not going to flatten the peak. We're not going to vastly slow transmission because it's just going to start slowing on its own pretty soon. But what we can do right now is protect people who are high at high risk. And, and, you know, I think, I don't know if we're going to make it, you know, kind of break through the people who've been chronically unwilling to change their behavior and or get vaccinated. But but like I've been saying, we, we, we may be able to make a difference in terms of protecting people who are mm-hmm. willing to make those kinds of changes. Are, are you actually are you actually arguing that the, the, the measures being taken in the schools are having a measurable impact on the high risk people at a value that justifies the cost to the children? No, no, I'm I'm. Not oh. arguing that. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. And I'm, I'm sorry, maybe I misunderstood the question about the schools. So well, I'm just my question about the schools is I is when I confront administrators and people about the regulations that are in schools, most people just say it's not my, you know, not my choice. It is what it is. But there's a lot of buck passing like. But I feel like the ex- expert community is firmly behind the 
continuing implementation of extreme restrictions in schools. And if they actually went out there and said, no, I don't think it's changing a damn thing, you might see it. You might see, I mean, a preschool with masks um, on the teachers, uh, people, I heard stories, uh, real life people talking about speech therapists in school where everybody's masked. You can't, you can't function. I mean, this is, this is, there's a level of insanity um, and commitment to these preventative measures that it isn't matched anywhere. And I think that if the collective expert community, I mean, no one's going to listen to me, right? Um, but if maybe the expert community said, this isn't worth the, the, the cost, maybe it would stop. So I guess a few things about that. Like, I don't know if I would call it insanity. I think that there are things, and, and it, people who are experts in education have to weigh the costs and benefits, right? And certainly there are huge costs that our children have been suffering with the various kinds of uh, measures we've been taking throughout the pandemic. But, you know, when we think about something like the Omicron surge, you know, it is it's pretty short lived. You know, we're talking about probably maybe two months, let's say, at the at the, at the most where we really do want to do what we can to, um, you know, protect people who are IRS, but also just keep our schools open, keep the doors open. Right. And, and to do that, you got to prevent large outbreaks from happening. So, you know, I, I'm not going to comment on preschools, but like for for, you know, grade schools and high schools, Asking kids to wear good masks for two months um, for schools that have access to and can afford regular testing as an additional safeguard. These are things that we can do that, for the most part, don't uh, don't negatively impact the educational experience. They allow people still to get together. If you're in a nice climate and you can choose to eat outdoors instead of indoors, why not take that extra precaution? It'll um, maybe down the road, actually save lives and prevent hospitalizations, but it'll also just keep the school functioning. More people can show up for school because fewer people are infected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lauren, let's talk a little bit about what comes next. This is really getting to your what, what your consortium there at the University of Texas does. And then kind of beyond your current models, how are you thinking about what it looks like on the other side of the current surge? And, and, then even, and then even beyond. I've thought a lot about a question. I think we might have got this off air with you last time. We're like, you know, what happens next? And you're like, well, my memory of your answer was, well, since I've been in this business, like the, the gap between big infectious outbreaks has reduced, the time has reduced. And so I'm not optimistic about having another long break before we have another one of these big ones. Just, but that's a bigger picture question. But can you talk to us a little bit about how you anticipate the next few months going, how you anticipate the rest of the year going and what, and then we can talk about longer term. How do you think we're equipped or not equipped for what might come down the road? Okay. So, I mean, what I'm going to give you is not a crystal ball forecast, right? It's one of many plausible scenarios that run through my head when I, when I'm thinking on a daily basis about what's next. But um, I mean, I think, you know, we are going to come out of the Omicron surge with unprecedented levels of immunity in our population so many people are getting infected, right? And so this is, as we talked about earlier, this is the first wave that is going to be self-limiting, that is going to, that is, that has started to decline or will decline because we've reached at least temporarily herd immunity in many, mm-hmm. in many communities around the country mm-hmm. and, um, and around the world for that matter. I mean, that doesn't mean that every little pocket, every little neighborhood, every little community will have herd immunity and we may have pockets that have stayed isolated and then they sort of relax and we'll see a a blip here, you know, a little outbreak here or there. But I do think that this is going to be sort of game changing in terms of the level of immunity in the population. And so, so what does that mean for us? Well, and there's, there's a couple other things that I'm, I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about what does COVID look like down the road? You know, the other thing is that we have 
uh, new drugs that are coming online and should be available, you know, over the next few months in large quantities um, that really could be life-saving, that could make this, this virus much less fatal. Um, we, the, the, so what's, the, what's an example of one of those things? What are you thinking about when you refer to them? So, so the new Pfizer drug, I think is, okay. is yeah. very promising. You know, if people are treated very early on in infection, it, it seems the, you know, the, the clinical studies suggest that it really reduces uh, the likelihood of severe outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, with the development of like Omicron specific or more broad, broadly effective vaccines, that's going to also be game changing. So we have higher levels of immunity, hopefully continued advances in our medical armament. And um, and so that may mean that, you know, we, because of the immunity that we will have in the short term, and that will wane as uh, as as it has in the past and as, as the virus continues to evolve. And so, you know, maybe that our populations are vulnerable and depending on what emerges on the other side of the globe are vulnerable to another surge, you know, in, in six months or so. But hopefully when that next surge happens, we, uh, it will be less severe because we just have more immunity of some sort in the population because of Omicron and vaccines and all that. And it will also be less severe because we have better drugs to treat people who, who show up at, at the hospitals with severe symptoms. Mm-hmm. Is it fair to think about some of that immunity waning over time? This is something we've learned. You guys anticipated it. We lay people didn't. But this past this year, 2021, we just learned that these vaccines were their shelf life you know, decrease. And so when you think about the benefits that come from a lot of society getting Omicron recently, will that wane over time? And so are we all, if this continues to live in some pocket of the globe and kicks back up, we all remain vulnerable in some way for a while. Yes. I mean, yes, probably, probably the immunity that we gain through natural infection, the immunity that we gain through vaccines will wane through time as we've seen it. And it's, and it's sort of a combination of, you know, the sort of the immune system, the immune response sort of d- declining, but also um, new variants emerging that just look different to our immune system than the previously right. circulating variants. So it's, it's, it's a function of both like how recently were we infected or boosted and how good are our vaccines, but also how different are those variants that are emerging on the other side of the globe and, and showing up on our shores. So let me, the guys are trying to jump in. I'm going to ask one more question, guys, and I'll, then I'll yield the floor a little bit. But as you think, Dr. Myers, about just this is <laughs> like a personal question in a way. It's like, are you anticipating life continuing kind of be the same up and down mask and vaccines and school closures. And maybe we have a decreasing, you know, vicissitudes, but we're going to have these vicissitudes just for a while. That's just going to be what life is as, as you just implicitly go about your life and think about the future. Is that in there that way? Or is it, or am I not thinking about it? Right. Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, again, lots of plausible future. Of course, one, of course. one plausible future is that um, COVID becomes some, some season, a seasonal threat, sort of like influenza. In the winter, we have you know flu season, we have a COVID season, and um, and maybe if you know COVID remains a more severe virus than influenza, when COVID picks up, we do on an annual basis put on face masks for a little while. We do on an annual basis sort of. Uh, avoid these mass gatherings or, or things we know um, might promote transmission. And, and we take extra precautions if we live with people who are high risk or if we ourselves are high risk. So, so I could imagine that we have, um, we have an annual season when, when COVID picks up speed where we, we do take more precautions than we ever have mm-hmm. before this pandemic, but it's something that's manageable. It's something that, you know, is a much lower infection fatality rate because of 
immunity because of drugs, uh, because of vaccines. And it's something we learn to live with. And, and, you know, we may even get to a point where we have, you know, just like we have the, you know, we had color coded alert systems for COVID. We have, we have a, a, an established alert system, and maybe it's even on a national scale. And the CDC lets us know, or our, our state health department lets us know when it's the time of year that we need to be a little more cautious. But this is this is exactly where your conversation was taking me. It feels like we have that infrastructure in a way that we haven't before. Not just the infrastructure, but also lay people's awareness of it. So in the past, it's like, yeah, you know, the drugstore tells me it's time to get a flu shot. I get a flu shot, but now I can go to you know various places and find out. Well, it's here's the infection rate in my community. I can read reports that your consortium kicks out and says, this is the wave that's coming. This is the type or whatever. Presumably that's just going to be kind of in the water now that we've got these technologies and awareness that people are just going to be thinking about this in more sophisticated ways, or at least they could be thinking about it in more sophisticated ways. Yeah, I hope so. And I, and I hope we, we have a more unified front as far as like our public health departments and the messaging that they are uh, putting out, you know, at a national, state, a local scale, that there is, you know, one color-coded system that's been pressure tested and socialized. And so that, you know, we know where to look, we know how to behave, we know how to respond. You know, just today, I don't know if you got it in your sort of social media circles, just today, you could sign up for the first time to get um, COVID tests delivered to your house by the postal system, right? Maybe during that time of the year, it's an, it's an automatic. Everybody's getting tests uh, delivered mm-hmm. to their house on a weekly basis when we need them. I got mine and I, and I, and I filled it in. <laughs> nice. <Okay. laughs> I don't know, Scott, yeah. So I, I guess another reason for, I guess, optimism for the kind of long-term future besides the kind of our, our medical advances, obviously in treating uh, severe cases of COVID is also, I mean, can you maybe speak a little bit to, you know, the evolution of the virus itself? I mean, obviously there's always going to be some chance as long as, as COVID exists and the new variants have popped up. But Omicron seems to have pushed kind of the population of COVID that's out there into kind of a better, from a human perspective, area where it's it's more transmissible, but less severe in terms of the actual health consequences. And does that kind of, I mean, that seems to be like in viruses in the past, that sort of has been kind of a natural part of their evolution that you, they become more transmissible, less deadly does that mean that virus if, if, if omicron's the kind of new sort of starting point for most new variants does that mean that we can kind of hopefully expect that new variants maybe will be kind of more in that direction yeah i, I think i mean there's a lot of theory out there and there are a lot of you know experts uh sort of projecting that sort of hopeful hopeful future you know i um the, the, the virus that I studied the most and researched the most before COVID was influenza. And, and as you know, it, we don't, we, we have not experienced a steadily declining in severity year after year with influenza. Like the, we had 2009, um, H1N1, which was, you know, a, a moderately or kind of modestly severe. Um, no, it was a, it was a pretty mild pandemic. And then we had, we had a season with like no influenza. We had all this going on. And then 2017 turned out to be the most deadly flu season on record, much more severe than 2009. And then it became milder in 2018. So there's no guarantee that um, the severity of, of COVID is going to kind of monotonically decrease through time. Right. And, and um, there's a lot. No, of but I, I, I guess. There. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if it just gets to the level where it's, it's as deadly as the flu's worst season, 
then that I mean I, I kind of feel like I, I don't yeah I, I wouldn't expect yeah. monotonic decrease but yeah. if, if it gets if it basically if this evolution puts it into the flu territory kind of for the future yeah. would that'd be okay well, well it's, better than, it's better than we are now but we 2017 season was a bad flu season right it's it's stretched across lots of 2017 sorry was a bad flu season lots of Lots. It stretched more deaths on record than any other flu season. It really stretched our hospital system. So, I mean, yes, it's it is. I agree. It's better than where we are today with COVID. But but it would be good if it you know <laughs> if it evolved to be even less severe than 2017 influenza. So I, I, I don't. I want to just make this clear because it there's a lot of differences between flu and COVID. And one of them seems to me, at least as a non-medical person, is that the way I think of COVID, the way it's described to me of the doctors I work with, is that COVID is two diseases. There's the there's the cold part, and then there's the deadly part. And the trick is to prevent it from advancing from that front part to the back part. Yeah. Is that how influenza works as well, or is it or is it just like a? I'm not, I can unfortunately think of people that I know that I've lost to flu to influenza in my lifetime. And it, there wasn't like a long period of being, you know, you yeah. just got really sick and like a pneumonia set in and you died. Yeah. Um, and so is there any parallel to that in flu? I, I don't think so. I think, I think the analogy is sort of skin deep at this point. You know, we're just, I'm just looking at the curves for flu and the curves for COVID. And I think they're very different viruses. And, you know, what, what does COVID look like, you know, five years from now when most people will have either had lots and lots of vaccines and boosters or have actually been infected by some descendant of the, or ancestor of the current COVID, it may look different. You know, how people get sick, what happens then may look different than what COVID looks like today. But, but no, you're, you're absolutely right. They're, they're very different viruses. But I also think it matters a lot because we think about um, there obviously are vaccinated people who, who are getting COVID and dying, but uh, there is a fraction of the population for whom the vaccine really just doesn't take. Right. Um, and, and we actually often know who they are ahead of time. Um, right. And that's always the, the we, something in a long running discussion on COVID is when we talk about anything that's a small probability. Is that just an equal chance? Like, does everyone have a, a coin toss or is it someone that some people have a very bad outcome and others essentially zero? Um, but that leads to this issue of boosting. And, and one thing most of us are talking about is, is are there going to be boosters forever? And let's just go back in, in, in the past and ask it did seem that boosting was effective at, at for the Delta, but the data on the boosting now, at least the ones that I've noticed, and maybe you, maybe you have different data or have seen other studies, seems to indicate that the boosting has added essentially nothing over what the vaccine has added in terms of preventing infection. I shouldn't say essentially. There does seem to be a small um, drop in infection rate, but none of this is controlled studies. And these are not... Uh, randomized design. So we don't, and there's obviously enormous numbers of confounding factors, which are not ignorable. So what do you think about, do you model boosters as giving protect, uh, protection? Do you think there's, that we really need them because they're, they are, they do have small risks. Um, and what is your general thoughts on boosting ad infinitum? Yeah. So um, there is a lot of uncertainty as you point to, and, and yes, we, we do model boosting and, you know, we, <laughs> You know, we, our models have been anything but static. You know, every single month, there seems to be something we have to update. And sometimes it's really fundamental changes to our model. And with Omicron, it's just been a mad scramble to make our models as kind of realistic as possible, as we've been learning almost day by day, how immune evasive is Omicron? How does it relate to when you were vaccinated last, when, if you were boosted last, when you were last infected, which variant infected you? And we're, we're building all of that to the extent possible into our models. And, and we do assume 
in, in the models that we use to make the projections that you mentioned earlier um, in this episode, we, we do assume that the level of immunity that somebody enjoys depends on the date of their most recent vaccine, whether it's a boost, whether it's shot two, shot one. And there is some evidence that there is, you know, you do enjoy some short-term cross protection um, in a, you know, immediately after whatever shot you most recently had. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Dr. Myers, we're going to need to let you go, unfortunately for us, unfortunately for you, unfortunately for us, but one last question, and it's a hard one. Um, you just referred to the modeling updates you have, to, have had to make over the last two years. You've been working on this probably for two years now. You knew about it certainly before we did. I'm curious how you come out of it. You were not out of it all the, all, all the way yet, but how you, you are different now, how are you thinking about different epidemiology differently, um, modeling these things differently? In short, what have you learned? I'm sure that could be a full 90 minute presentation. You're just talking, but if you were to kind of try to glean a, thought or two off the top. What do you think you've learned about computational epidemiology from the last two years experience, this intense thing you've been doing? Oh my gosh, that is such a hard question. I mean, I think- <laughs> what, we, what, won't hold, we won't hold yeah. you to your answer. Just yeah. what's your I thought mean, today? What, what, com what comes to mind is just what we are still missing from the models. Like we just have not made much progress in um, building models that adequately uh, capture and predict human behavior, right? And, and, and so we're, we're still in a very kind of um, uh, crude way, like trying to grab data on wherever we can find, how many people have been boosted, how many people have been vaccinated and trying to throw that in the model. And, you know, we're looking at mobility data, but there's still so much work to be done in kind of merging the behavioral sciences with epidemiology. Mm -hmm. um, we've really made some, I think, elegant breakthroughs in how to model this very complex evolving immunological landscape. So mm -hmm. at first when like Delta arose, we, we, we took our single model and we said, let's add another strain and let's like chart these two strains. And then we had a vaccine, let's add one dose and ask two doses. And we've, we've come up with a really nice way of trying to kind of incorporate um, uh, a very complex um, landscape of immunity, which is what, you know, we, we see today, you know, any one person, when did they last get vaccinated? How many doses? When were they last infected? And so, so there's been some really nice technical breakthroughs as well. So you're saying elegance, so there's some structure there that captures all of this complexity without just glomming pieces on one exactly. after the other. Exactly. Very nice. All right. Listen, Dr. Myers, thank you for being with us. Very much appreciate your taking the time. Wish you the best with the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. It was nice to be here. Dr. Lauren Ansel Myers, Cooley Centennial Professor of Integrative Biology and Statistics and Data Sciences at UT Austin. She's also at SFI and she runs the modeling consortium, UT's COVID modeling consortium, one of the best on the front lines for the last two years. That has been Q1. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into Q2 now, open line segment. We're going to talk a little football, I suspect, among other things. You guys can jump in here in a way. We always love to hear from you. Hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about sports analytics occasionally, and we love your ideas, suggestions, complaints, comments, whatever you got. You can also drop us an email. It's our mailbag. Our email address is moneyball at wharton.upin.edu. That is moneyball at wharton.upin.edu. 
www.edu. We read everything you send and we'd love to hear from you. We get as much of it as we can on the air. Please drop us a note. Love to hear what you're thinking about. All right, fellas, we are Eric Bradlow free. He's out doing some fatherly things. He'll be back. I'm curious what you guys are thinking about the football world we live in now. No more college, which is sad, but we're picking up steam on the football on the NFL side. So first round of the playoffs, the number one seed sat on the sidelines and watched these other schmucks go at it. We went all weekend long. That's a new thing. Three days of playoff football in the NFL. That's kind of interesting. What, if anything, caught your eye over the last three days? Well, I watched some playoff football. I think I watched a little bit of every day, which was great, right? Um, see how far I've come, Kate? Um, it's awesome. We're so, we're so proud, Audie. So yeah. proud. So I watched the Bills, and that was the most extraordinary thing I have I saw, obviously, all weekend. But, but in greater context, one of the most extraordinary things potentially ever. Um, so but I'll leave it to you guys. I've done a lot of calculations with this, but I'll leave it to you guys to explain it more. Well, I want to I want to talk about it. Um, I just want to say and you, maybe that was extraordinary, but I found uh, Kyler Murray's pick six last night. <laughs> extraordinary. Yeah. No, I mean, there's been, there was a there was a lot of kind of, uh, I guess uh, there's a lot of blow. There's basically a lot of blow. Yeah, you know, kind of, you know, of course, when, when Kyler Murray did that pick six, I originally thought of, my God, he's an awesome center fielder. You should really give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I, uh, I got a text from my father. Wentzian. I, I like Booger's kind of, I was like, oh, like uh, he, he said, what, what in the name of Carson Wentz was he thinking? <laughs> I got a text from my father in law 30 seconds later that said Boomer Sooner, which I enjoyed immensely. We're, 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 we are, we were enjoying that particular aspect of Murray's pain. Um, let's talk about those two things. Y'all name two things. Uh, and I would love to hear more on both of them. One is, a lot of blowouts. Now that's going to happen. Heck, we went through about a 20 year run of Super Bowls that were all blowouts. Mm-hmm. So it's going to happen. So the question is whether, you know, is there something structural here in particular, we've added seven seeds to the playoffs. Is that going to take some fun away? And it just raises the general question of like tournament design essentially. So let's let's do that, but let's come back to it. Adi mentions the Bills game, which was a ball and great especially <laughs> for Bills fans. I mean, obviously it's not the There's, word I would use for it. I mean, it was, it was, it was a smackdown. I mean, it was it was it was pretty brutal. Shane, there's I, just I, no there's no empathy in the world for Pats fans. Just no one cares. No one's worried about it. There's like no, it's just not there. I, I mean, I'm not I'm not looking for empathy, but I am going to push back on a what a great time that was. Kind oh my of, god, you know, no! Statement. Yeah, you don't get any weight in the equation. Okay. Right. I had too right. many too many right. Super Bowls, and those poor suffering Bills, man, come on. So n- notably, people started noticing this during the game, and then fussed about it afterwards. And I'm not surprised that Audi has done a little noodling on it. But some people call it the perfect game by the Bills because, you know, in short, they didn't punt. And not only did they not punt, they didn't kick field goal, except for the end of the first half and the end of the second. They ended every drive with a touchdown. So I think it was seven. Yeah, or, 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 or another way of thinking about it is they never once were pushed to fourth down. In the game, the, the, the fourth they didn't even have to convert any force in this game either. Yeah, okay. They were never oh, once. Wow, pushed I didn't even fourth. know that. That's they were never point. once pushed to fourth down. So that's really, you know, the Pat fan might observe that because when you just can't stop them, and that's just a painful experience. But this is the first time this has happened in the history of in whatever era of mm-hmm. the NFL yeah. we have we've observed this, right? And so th- this is the kind of thing that grabs all of our attention. Is like, what are the chances of that? So really, anytime you hear the first time ever, and it, I have to admit, it surprised me 
that nobody had ever scored a touchdown on every drive in the NFL. Certainly, it's, I'm sure it's happening in college football. But it is a little surprising to me. So I, I wanted to dig around and, and get some stats, and I'll have some eventually, but um, we, I wasn't able to put my hands on it. Ben Baldwin runs these drive probability stats periodically throughout the season, but it sounds like Audie might have found something. So, Odd, what, what do you got? I, I did it for my own class. Um, uh, my, I'm teaching a capstone class in statistical uh, sports statistics, and I actually have a, a win probability. Um, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Tell us more of this class. This right, is so undergraduate. This is an undergraduate. So we started last year. It's our second year we're doing it. It's a, it's a senior capstone only for Wharton students. And what does it mean? What does it mean to be a capstone in this instance? So it's supposed to be like a um, a, uh, a final touchstone of your undergraduate experience. So these students are are doing a short course. It's a half a credit, focusing on on concentrating all their knowledge into one particular short course. And, are they and, statistics majors? Are, is it open to all, all majors? They're on Wharton, so Wharton degree is an actual degree in, in applied economics, um, and that's a, technically what you're getting is an economics degree. But these students all have uh, concentrations in statistics or analytics. Okay. And how many students? Twenty-seven. Um, and this is actually an interesting uh, um, year because I did it last year, and virtually everyone in it were very avid and interested in sports. This year. There's a, a good third of the class has never had much knowledge or experience in sports, and they have uh, indicated they take the class because they wanted to do a statistics capstone, and I was the only one who was offered. Um, wow. Well, that's, but let me just laud that because the only way to get better at numbers is to run numbers. It's, it's very much like a foreign language. You just got to be playing with data all the time. It is. And in fact, the, the, the entire uh, course is essentially project-based. There's four uh, projects building up to a final project. Um, and, and it's just looking at data and, and making inferences and, and drawing out uh, narratives from the data. So one of the projects that I actually that's, that I did is a win probability model. And I went back old school, do dynamic systems, right? So instead of doing simulation or machine learning, you go back and say, how many possessions do you have left? And uh, figure out your win probability. And you do that actually by working backwards. Um, and you, you start from the, the score differential at the end, and then you work play by play. And it's essential dynamical system uh, set of equations, and you have a computer solve it using a recursive equations. But at, the reason why I, it's relevant here is I need to input it. And the things that you need to input that model are your probabilities of play outcomes in any given possession. So I actually collected all that data and have it st- sitting in front of me. And so... Um, just for simplicity, we ask the question, what's your probability of a field goal? What's the probability of a, of a touchdown? What's the probability of, of not getting anything on a possession? Um, oh, not, real, real, so real quickly, uh, where did you get these data and over what time period do you have? Them? Well, I have them for 2018, 19, and 2020. Those okay. And you have them at the at game, game team They're level, game presumably? Game, game team. Game team possession level outcomes, essentially. So they're, yeah, so essentially what I have is all the different teams. So um, maybe you guys want to throw this out, but what do you think the, the historical average is approximately of getting a touchdown in a given possession? It's such a great question. So fundamental. We ought to have some sense of that. Shane, don't say anything until I've thought about it for a second. Um, that's not a, so, so it's, it's basically seven points. Yeah, let's just say seven points. Well, let me, let me do the good money ball thing and think it through a little bit. What, what's the average score in the NFL these days? You're talking about the last three years. So these are pretty high scoring games. I don't, what's the, what do you think the average over under is 45 points or something? 
Maybe yeah, a little half, 47, 48. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I would sort of have guessed like, you know, somewhere in the range of three to four touchdowns per game for a team. For, for a team, yes. Yeah. So or maybe more, maybe more like three. I Maybe just three. No, well, maybe go, field goals as well. So in those No, three. but we, we were yeah, specifically so, focusing so on Shane's back enough. Good. Shane's back in field goals. His half of his half yeah. a touchdown is going to be a field goal. He's going to say yeah. three touchdowns per game. Now the question becomes how many possessions do they get? Um, I, we, I know that the Buff, Buffalo scored seven touchdowns. They had nine possessions, two ended in halves, and so – now I've got that. I think heavy. that's kind of low on low on the level. I, I think probably teams probably a because you know they they didn't you know. I I think uh, I would say probably like twelve possessions per game, maybe. Really, that's too high. I'm going below that. So? I'm going, I'm going ten. I'm going thirty percent. Three out of ten is my base rate. Wow. I guess I'm going to go a little lower. I'm going to go twenty five percent. All right. Well, Shane wins. It's lower than than twenty five, but not much lower. It's about twenty two percent. Okay. Um, but there are teams that do score um, much higher than that. So that's the, that's the mean uh, among yeah. the teams. And um, the standard issue is about 6% on that. So it's about, and, and it's a little bit, obviously, longer tail to, to the, mm-hmm. the liar. The largest teams are scoring between 30 and 35% of touchdown per possession, the best. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, but there's no one who's done more than 36% in the last three years. And he, the reason why that matters is, so I did a back of the envelope calculation and said, Here's what would it take to make getting seven touchdowns um, in, without fail, fail on seven consecutive possessions? What would make that probability one in a thousand, which is really, really small. But that for me is a, is a I, ta- I usually use one in a thousand as the as the cut as the approximate cut point. When something happens that's that's about one one thousand or more likely, I just throw up my hands and go, well, there's lots of crazy shit. that." Happens. Oh, but hold on. Adi, that's, you can do better than that here, though, because we know this hasn't happened in yes, we can. more than a thousand so, so games. Two approaches to this. One is the pure frequency approach. The other is to back it out. So I asked myself, how likely would it what would be the probability of them scoring? Um, their true probability, if you will, of scoring on any given drive to make it a one in a thousand chance of having this particular outcome. And, it, mm-hmm. and it's well in excess of 40%. It'd have to be like 43 or 44%, which is way bigger than anyone's ever done before historically. But wait, historically, that, th- that 36% being the highest, that's like for a team across a season or well, individual for a team game? across a season. Because obviously in individual right. games. Oh, sure. Of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. So, Which is kind of a more relevant across, statistic here, so right? For a team across the season. So basically what I'm saying is what's its true theta of scoring? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And okay. then you ask yourself, um, the probability of doing that seven times in a row is theta to the seventh power. So I said, so, and so essentially their probability for, for a team that has to have an incredibly high probability of scoring a touchdown in, in any given possession to have even a, a one in a thousand chance of doing this across a game. And that incredibly high is about 0.43 or so. And yeah. that is way higher than any team has ever than we than we've ever seen. Well, no, again, not at an individual game level. Like for, for that to be their no, true course, data course. across a season, that's, right. that's unprecedented. But that's of course, right. that's not the situation here, right? I mean, like really the Buffalo Bills have some true theta. Yep. That's probably in a reasonable range, definitely below 0.43, but the you know, the, the, the single so, okay. game sampling of that distribution of things. Well, let's, let's play with that. Let's play with that and just build out the you know, model. We just want to need one more level of the model, right? So you can ask yeah. what the, what is the distribution around those true thetas within a season? So yeah. any given team has its own standard deviation. I mean, as a first approximation, you probably, well, I don't know. How would we think about that? So yeah. What's, what's, I mean, you could estimate that, Adi, and we just, uh, so, I mean, basically if, 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 
Buffalo had the best offense that we uh, in the in the league. That we the best, certainly the best we've ever seen in the last three years. Well, they would have about a six and a ten thousand chance of doing what they did. But again, I'm, again, I'm, I'm, I think that extra there think, is a level of heterogeneity. I don't think that's yeah. I think you've got to. I think you've got to say there's their best performance of the best. Reliably, the best, every team is going to have a best performance that outperforms their average. Of course, you want, you want to give them that. I guess I, I want to look at that population of per game, not not like average. Before you average across the seat, like the per game touchdown proportion. Yeah, and I mean, I, I would, I still think it probably would be definitely very much in the tails. I think another thing that kind of helped this one is that they didn't actually have. I mean, I also, I mean, you look the data more than I I have. How how extreme was just having only nine possessions, or technically only really having seven real possessions? Right. I mean, yeah. they had nine possessions, two of which were essentially kneel downs. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I feel like that's kind of. I mean, part of the reason you know, I, you know, it's it's easier to get all of your you know for P to be for, for 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 Y to be you know a hundred percent if N is smaller. Right. So I kind of feel like you know if. if they may have been kind of like it may have been a combination of them just not having as many possessions as well that kind of helped them get to this kind of. I think Shane's trying to amount. trying to take the take the shine off of this accomplishment against the Pats. Clearly, looking no, for no, looking, no, 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 no. How many football games have there been? If this has never happened before, how many football games have there been played? Yeah, like we're talking oh, about yeah, the yeah. Super Bowl era. Yeah, no, Super Bowl right. era is fifty. Five years old now, and yeah. Very I mean, again, there are certain dynamics. Over. I mean, I think part of it, and I'm not trying to shine off it. It was a, it was a dominant performance, and I'm underselling it there, obviously. But I mean, think of what happens in a regular season game. If if you know if if, if all of a sudden, I mean, usually a team scores on say their first four or five possessions, they've got touchdowns already. They are probably, you know, that's, you know, that is likely to be already a blowout or something where they're very highly advantaged in that game. And I think during most kind of, pro- you know, there's a lot of processes that make you not continue to try and score yeah. touchdowns in every possession, like yeah. taking your starters out, et cetera. So I guess yeah. the denominator, I mean, it's still impressive, but there's a lot of kind of factors, I think, beyond just how dominant they were over the Patriots in this particular game that leads to this to not happen, you know, regularly, or, or we can't just look at one over one divided by the total number of games. Cause the number of opportunities really, or the number of opportunities a team would try and take to do this is, is I think much smaller than that. Yeah, that's fair, but it's, it is an interesting observation. And I, I, the, the, if we said 50 years of NFL and an average of 200 games, I mean, there were, there were fewer for a while. There's more since then. Yeah. I have no idea. And it's still, like, it's still, I'm, I'm not trying to take the shine off. It's something that has happened, never happened before. Well, we just this past weekend. 50 times 200, and that's games. Yeah. So that's 10,000. And then there's two teams per game. So that's 20,000 games. Yeah. You know, very, very, very roughly. And so it's that's I mean that's that's way below the number even Adi came up with. Oh, but by the way, my, I came up with that number so that it would have a one in a thousand possibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> so to make it, so if you ask yourself, oh, I would say the chance of this happening is well less than one in twenty thousand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The question is how much less than one in twenty. Yeah, yeah. So, guys, uh, another thing that struck me about this playoff was the structure and the change in the structure. And we had this conversation, and we need, I need to go back and give credit to the person who gave it to us. In fact, it might have been a comment or an email. I think it was an email. 
about the about tournament design. And the, there's a, just a one-to-one analogy between things that you don't usually think of as analogous. You know, the NFL season and, say, you know, the European Championships or the World Cup. Yeah. And there's basically there's two stages and this is very similar across almost all tournament science. There's a qualifying stage and then there's a knockout stage. And what we've gone, the regular season is a qualifying stage. It's the group stage in a, in a soccer tournament. And now we're in, into knockouts and, and fundamental parameters you play with in these tournament designs are, okay, how many people from the group stage, what percentage advance, how many teams advance to the knockouts? And then are there buys, um, and, and what I'm curious about, if, if, if y'all were in, to engage this question and ask, you know, is it good for the NFL to have added the seventh team from a revenue perspective? Sure. And that's why the owners did it. And it's, yeah. I mean, we live in a free economy, so that's going to, that's just the way it's going to be. But from a entertainment perspective, what dimensions do you care about? So you can't yeah. evaluate this thing unless you specify what the objectives are. So what dimensions should we care about as we evaluate tournament design just as a part of an ongoing conversation we have about this periodically yeah and i mean i don't think you want i mean you want to kind of avoid blow things like blowouts in the playoffs i think are, are are not particularly satisfying um so i mean some kind of excitement or competitiveness i guess of the games mm-hmm. i mean here i think there's a trade-off even with the current structure i i see pluses and minuses because yes i think this this two versus seven matchup i think does push us towards more blowouts. I mean, they haven't all been blowouts. The Bills, you know, I look back at the two versus seven last year and the Bills Chargers game was very competitive. Or no, it was mm-hmm. the Bills Colts was very competitive. So that we've had mm-hmm. one competitive two versus seven game uh, mm-hmm. so far out of four. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also makes the end of the regular season, that qualifying round more exciting that more teams are in contention Right. later into the season. So I think that's right. an obvious advantage of kind of having expanded playoffs in general. So real quickly, Shane, on this point, it's the first point I've ever heard, and it's come up in, in the last day or two, that has made me slightly sympathetic to this first round buy, yeah. because presumably you mitigate that problem by not making it a one seven match or a one eight match. Yeah, no. And I, I mean, I, 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 I also, this is a, this is the more subtle thing is that I think, you know, cause I mean, probably the 17th game is just a path to an 18th game, you know, and I think yeah, probably right. of course. This, this, is seventh, where this seventh playoff team is probably a path, path to an eighth playoff, eighth playoff team. And right. if we do go to eight playoff teams, I do no, not want to see a one versus an eight. I think we need to bring buys back. I used to think that I don't like the current format and that only a single team gets a buy, but I used to just dislike it just because it gave that one team a disproportionate advantage over say, even the second seed. But I think that the subtle one I wasn't thinking about up until this year is it prevents that kind of, like, I think the the first round of the playoffs is supposed to separate a little bit of the wheat from the chaff. So you don't have these top teams going up against things that are kind of much more highly predictable to be the chaff. Yeah. basically well and this so is I, I think if if we went to eight teams it would we'd want to bring back those couple buys and shane this is relevant because they're talking about the playoff structure in college football and of mm-hmm. course they're not thinking about optimal tournament design for like anybody's entertainment they're thinking about it from a purely political perspective but if they were i have been so anti these buys i hate 12 because four teams sit on the side while the other eight play but now this is like this is this goes back in the other direction it's just one consideration mm-hmm. but it goes back in the other direction imagine a one versus 
16 football, college football. I mean, that's yeah. Alabama versus, I mean, I don't know. Syracuse comes to mind. It's been a long time since Syracuse was 16, but we'd see some ugly ones. And so, you know, making that a 5-12 instead of a 1-12 or a 1-16 uh, increases the competitiveness. We only got one dimension in, but that's an interesting dimension, Shane. I think it is kind of eye-opening and, a, and a, an important, a reasonable consideration as we think about tournament design. All right, guys, that has been two quarters here on Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Got another segment of open topics, and we've got a conversation in the fourth quarter with our fan, with our with our friend Sam Ventura doing some hockey analytics. Sam's up there building the program, building the group with uh, the Buffalo Sabres. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the third quarter now. Joined here by my longtime co-host and good friend, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner. We're missing Eric. Eric will be back. Some combination of us are here every week. We do it every week via Zoom most weeks. Fellas, we just talked a little about NFL fourth quarter. We're going to talk about hockey. We might talk a little hockey later this quarter, but uh, I know y'all are always paying attention, as you do, to the Hall of Fame voting. What do we learn? What have we learned about the Hall of Fame voting? Well, you know, we, we pay attention because it's it's so statistical, right? It's public. It's tracked. And it's fun to make forecasts. And, you know, baseball is the most statistical of all the sports, particularly historically data and data driven. And, and we get to sort of study that. Um, the big thing, the big news, of course, is that uh, Big Pappy is leading the show. Um, but he's he's about 83.6% on the current public balance. We've talked about this before. That doesn't predict necessarily going in, although he's clearing the 75% mark now. He'd have to do pretty well on the private ballots in order to do that. And there's a segment of private ballots that just seem to be historically anti-drug uh, use um, and particularly offended by it, yeah. which is pulled down Bonds and Clemens, who typically pulled over 75% or, or near it, and then all of a sudden missed by a lot. A lot. And so those two don't look like they're going to make it. They're, they're both over 75%, but not sufficiently high I believe to to bring them across the line. So Clemens and Bonds are looking like they ain't going to make it. Then that's their tenth and final year. They're done. Kurt Schilling, who's always pulled at least as high as those two, he's pulling a lot less. It's almost as if the the steroid um, uh, the people who are okay with steroids have been cannibalized by having Big Pappy on the list. And and uh, so Kurt Schilling is take is taking a dive, and he's certainly not going to make it. Um, the real question is whether uh, whether David Ortiz will make it or not. He's about 83.6. Um, it tends to be about a 20 percent gap, but it's uh, um, in terms of the, the, fra- the fraction that will vote for him on the privates. But they're only about a quarter of the ballots. So I think he's going to be close. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I guess uh, one thing I, I, I mean, uh, see, see if you agree with this logic flow of mine, that uh, with this optimistic logic flow that I think he'll do perhaps better on these kind of later ballots that generally tend to be more negative towards players in general, you know, because just, I, I mean, the evidence I have that the kind of stigma of drug use or, 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 or steroids somehow is, is, is not being attached to David Ortiz in general is the huge distinction between him and A-Rod, right? I mean, A-Rod by all non-steroid measures is, was a, a superior player to David Ortiz. I, I mean, it, you know, no, it's, it's, not even, it's not even close, right? Yeah. 
but a rod is has has so far on the ballots been so much lower you know so many so so many more voters are voting for ortiz and not for a rod if that kind of you know if if somehow that continues into the private ballots maybe ortiz you know i mean i understand that there's connections between him and steroids but maybe somehow those connections are seen as as weak enough by the writers or they kind of just feel like you know he's kind of the one the one person they decided you know have decided somehow not to punish in the same way say, say more about that because it, it mostly feels like those guys have all been painted with the same brush so what is the distinction valid or otherwise what's the distinction that's being drawn here what is the distinction in the cases well i mean so david ortiz has never I mean, A-Rod actually admitted to using steroids, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, David Ortiz has never kind of, the only thing that kind of attaches him to steroid use is that, you know, um, there was that sort of like supposedly uh, private or or anonymous kind of, you know, initial wave of tests that were were done way back in the day um, that weren't ever supposed to be made public about people that had tested positive or not. And Ortiz was on that list. Uh, okay. And so there is kind of so a what, balance. So, and that, that was kind of pre the actual formal testing program for the MLB. And so this is kind of like, so say Ortiz has never formally tested positive for steroids, uh-huh. you know, and is certainly not admitted to ever doing steroids. Um, and that certainly distinguishes him, you know, uh, I, I, I mean, A-Rod obviously is, is a different category. So, I mean, you know, the, 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 uh, I guess the plausible deniability that David Ortiz did not use steroids is much higher. Whereas with A-Rod, it's, it, I mean, he just openly admitted that he did. I saw a headline sometime the last week about how all these cases are not equal. And they're certainly not equal from, in terms of player performance. Do you have any sympathy for there needing to be some categorization in terms of lifetime achievement, career achievement yeah. among the guys who are being excluded from the hall. Yeah, no, I, 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 I totally do. And, and I mean, like it actually maybe suggests maybe another way in which people make a distinction between David Ortiz and Alex Rodriguez. There's many, I think, different paths to the hall. I mean, if you talk about kind of just cumulative numbers, I mean, I think Alex Rodriguez, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, all these people, I think, even if you want to kind of penalize them, for performance enhancing substances to do that. Like, I mean, do that in a way that sort of like, fine, subtract off. I mean, who knows what the ratio is, but take away some of their cumulative statistics and say, Oh, those, those are a rods. Those are particular home runs that a rod hit that he, if he hadn't been on steroids, they wouldn't have been out of the park or what, you know, type of thing. And I think bonds, Clemens, a rod all have, if you if you kind of tried to reasonably remove sort of what performance enhancing substances did to them, all had Hall of Fame careers beyond anyway. though. Anyway, David Ortiz, I, I mean, I kind of suspect he doesn't have. He's interesting because he doesn't have the kind of cumulative totals that even puts him in the same class as those guys. I I mean, he does have a lot of home runs, and that's probably one of the reasons he's may consider for the hall of fame but i think a lot of people probably a lot of writers are voting for him based on kind of things like more like postseason specific postseason heroics all these types of things where it's like you know i think when people think of performance enhancing drugs they kind of think of it more as like sort of like this is something that just kind of helped the cumulative sort of like totals of these people mm-hmm. but they don't attribute it to like individual moments that they remember in the case of david ortiz Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, David Ortiz, if he gets in on the first ballot, will exemplify this being the Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. Hardly anyone more famous for baseball than David Ortiz during those uh, great years of the Red Sox runs. 
Tell me more about why what why that is. I mean, to what extent? I, I asked this at the very last minute a couple of weeks ago. To what to what extent is this a popularity contest? How much does likability matter? We've had very few major league baseball players in recent years who are just flat out as likable from a distance as that guy is. And so I, I would assume that affects voters because they're human. Yeah. Hi, I mean, I mean you look. I mean, the, uh, the other two that are probably equals to him in terms of likability. Derek Jeter and Mariano Rivera were first ballot Hall of Famers. And like, I mean, Mariano had the first unanimous, you know, kind of right. entry into and, the Hall and, of Fame, right? And, and that's a little surprising, not because Mariano was, was not the greatest closer ever lived, but he was a closer and you would have expected yeah. at least somebody to get all pissy about that and mm-hmm. not, not knock him off the first ballot. And no one did. And, and Derek Jeter, he also, I mean, obviously first ballot Hall of, Hall of Fame, of course, but you he was essentially off by one vote i think it's all it was and again it's it's because of the personality and jeter had weaknesses we we shane and i discussed them in articles we've written um mariana less so but you know I, it's to a degree it's certainly personality but i think what's really striking going back to personality is shilling because shilling's not caught up in the uh in the in the um the drug uh issue it was never his thing yeah, and yeah. this guy was a, a guy who missed by a hair's breadth last year and he's just getting crushed this year. And usually the, the 10th year is the year to make the move. It's not, you don't go down in the 10th year and he is really getting crushed. And that is again, part of the, partly because of the cannibalization between, with A-Rod and the last two years for Clemens and Bonds splitting the votes, but also because I think it has to do with personality and, and that entering it in it more than it ever has. So that's what's going on. But I mean, if you want to talk on the, on the other side, they're not going to make it this year. But candidates that are on the move are um, Scott Rowland, definitely on the move, um, mm-hmm. Todd Helton, and uh, Andrew Jones. And Andrew Jones is fascinating because this is a guy who had a great offensive first half of his career, um, but I don't think he has the offensive numbers to get in. But this was an absurdly good center fielder for a chunk of his career. And again, I think that speaks to the analytics, the war people, the um, uh, the people who counting more, more, more accurately and more bro- broadly think he's just a, a terrific, terrific player and a really elite enough to be in the Hall of Fame. So we'll have to watch his candidacy as it evolves. What What do you know about the 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 future impact, the future reliability of these moves in year one to two, two to three? Like, is that how do, how do you need to see a certain amount of jump in order to have confidence? Do you have that level of forecasting going on? Yeah. I mean, listen, we've, we got a lot of, a lot of data now. And I mean, these guys are, listen, they're not pulling, they're pulling it around 50 to 60%. I think Scott Rowland is, is going to make it. And I also think Todd Helton is going to make it based on my, my, my essence. I didn't build a model. I have done that in the past. When Messina was on the cusp, I was building models and that was the year I predicted him to get in. He got in and I was very proud of that. I forecasted that, but you know, that's a Yankee. Uh, I'm not going to be building models for predicting Scott Rowland. It's just, you know, Basically, there's like a trajectory. There's an expected trajectory for you to be on path as you're growing from year one to year 10. Okay, got it. Well, speaking of personalities in sports, any observations on what has gone on with the Australian Open? We're missing our resident tennis aficionado, but it's hard to miss the headlines from Djokovic over the last week. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think Eric would probably have even stronger kind of feelings about this. But I, yeah, I, I was watching that kind of closely. It seemed like a weird, yeah, I mean, it was mostly a legal kind of story as opposed to an actual, you know, kind of tennis story. But 
I think it's kind of interesting. I mean, it obviously kind of, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a game changer with the tournament itself because I, I, you know, I assume he was such a strong favorite for mm-hmm. that tournament and now to kind of not be able to kind of play in it. And now, you know, I mean, we, we make such a, a big deal about comparing these three kind of historical contemporary greats and, you know, the kind of, I guess, to a certain extent, the, um, the distinctions between them are so subtle that you kind of wonder like, you know, down the road, are we going to, when we're starting to t- compare totals for Nadal to totals to Djokovic or totals to like Federer, is this kind of tournament, whoever, if Nadal, for example, wins this tournament, is that going to kind of, is that going to count as a full one? Is there going to be some kind of weird asterisks that like, you know, Djokovic wasn't even allowed to compete? I don't, I don't know. I, th- I, yeah. I think that's a general, I think it's a super interesting question in general about major championships. I mean, so f- the level of competition and the chance involved, um, but I, you know, I think it's such a regular part of the experience that I certainly wouldn't expect a discount. And then, of course, you've got and we just talked about the politics of the Hall of Fame voting, you got the politics yeah. of this or a lot of folks who will hold it against Djokovic just to make such a um, stand on such a, 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 a bad position from a public health perspective. And it's interesting that it happens in Australia because, you know, something like 90 percent of Australian adults are vaccinated. It's a it's a country that's been. I mean, look, they're tired of everything as well, but they locked down pretty hard. They vaccinated pretty successfully. They've been pretty aggressive. And it's 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 just kind of ironic that this all took place in that country in particular. Yeah, and no. And I mean, I, yeah. And I, and I, I, I kind of wonder, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I think, you know, probably we'll be in a very different place when the U.S. Open rolls around. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see if any of this kind of stuff comes up then, too. Well, exactly. I mean, he's supposed to be qualified to be here. And you're talking about his, his long terms, you know, competition for the master for the major titles. The first place I go to is just handicapping himself. I mean, at a, yeah, at yeah. a point where he should be pushing ahead, he's not going to play in the U.S. Open at this rate. The French Open is is as a question mark. And so, I mean, it's astounding to me that he would take this position at this cost to himself. It's, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, we've got, yeah, I mean, we, we've been discussing this sort of of same decision to not get vaccinated in the context of like football games and not being available for your team during big moments and all this stuff. This is even more kind of obvious because it's like, you know, I I mean, I guess he's not letting down a team in the same way or anything like that, but I mean, yeah, it same thing to me. It's, it's, it's mind blowing that, you know, people kind of make this sort of like, clearly kind of in a competition sense, disadvantageous mm-hmm. choice. Mm-hmm. Well, and we don't have to go very far to see other examples. We've got Kyrie Irving still at a moment when um, Durant goes out. And so it could be even more important. And it's, I think it's, unfortunately, I think these guys, I mean, psychology would predict that these guys would dig their heels in because to change now would you have to accept having been wrong in some sense for months and having caused all this trouble. And so at the very least, they need to have an excuse for changing their mind. They need, they need to have a way to save face in some way. I don't know what yeah. that would be. So you, you need some source of non-stationarity to give them a rationale that doesn't make them eat everything that's happened before now. Um, it's just kind of, especially because these guys are so high profile. Once it's gone on for this long at that level, it's unlikely they're going to back down. All right, man. That has been another quarter of Morton Moneyball. We've still got a fourth quarter. We've got an interview with Sam Ventura, our friend hockey analyst with the Buffalo Sabres. Going to dig into the NHL and hockey analytics. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. 
Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. Fourth quarter is our interview segment, our sports-related interview segment, at least historically, during COVID time. In this quarter this week, we're delighted to have back on the show Sam Ventura. Sam has changed positions since we talked to him last. He is the Vice President of Hockey Strategy and Research at the Buffalo Sabres, another hockey outfit just up Lake Erie Shore Way. Um, was a long time at the, at the Pittsburgh. He was at Carnegie Mellon, a um, member of the, the sports analytics community in, in and around Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon for years now and moved in right as you guys were exited from the playoffs, I think, last year. The Sabres scooped him up. He's been building the new analytics group in Buffalo, and we'll, uh, we're very interested to hear about that. But, Sam, always glad to see you. Welcome back on the show. Well, thanks for having me back on, and, and kudos to you guys. Uh, I realize I'm, I'm not the first hockey interview this year, so this is uh, really exciting to see the, the turnaround on Wharton Moneyball. Well, y'all have, y'all have, ba- y'all have heckered, guilted us into it. Heckled us and guilted us. I think Mike Lopez might have even given given some some attention to your appearance last year, which um, we were very happy about. But we didn't want to wait another year. We don't need to wait for the playoffs. You're probably referencing. I'm guessing we had Namita on this fall with the Kraken getting off the ground out there. I'm, I'm, we must have been talking. We must have had Namita. Some now that was you would talk to us after we talked to her just as they were going in the draft. Who has been our hockey guest this year? Sam, remind me. I think you had Andrew Thomas on. And then, you know, I mean, aside from that, you, uh, I think hockey has gotten some, some more airtime this year than it had in past years. So Good. Good. Is that, well, Sam, is that because hockey is making bigger inroads into using analytics publicly or is it, who can, who can venture what's driving us? <laughs> I assume you were just so intrigued by our last conversation that you all just became <laughs> so interested in the sport. Right. <laughs> Right. I, I think was, it, for me, it's like a combination of the of the guilt that you've kind of. I, I think the guilt, guilt. I am somebody who's motivated by guilt to pay more attention and <laughs> stuff like that. And and also, you know, I mean, I continue to develop my portfolio. It's it's hard to kind of be, you know, really super involved and in paying close attention to three or four different sports. But then when you've got Eric Bradlow kind of paying attention closely at twenty or so, yeah, Matt, those previous like, rules go out the rule. That's right. Well, Sam, we didn't have a chance to talk about this before, but um, now that you're with the Sabres, I'm all in, man. I, I, I cut my hockey teeth on Buffalo Sabres. I spent two years up there in the in the early 90s, the Pat, Patty LaFontaine, Alexander McGillney era, and they, you guys played in the odd back then, and it was a glorious, glorious place to learn a little bit about. All my friends up there were hockey crazy. Some of them played at Canisius, and so I've got, I've got a real soft spot for your current franchise. Yeah, I'm really excited to join the organization, a very uh, rabid fan base up there. And um, Mm -hmm. it was an exciting opportunity for me just to um, have an opportunity to build out our um, analytics department from scratch and then um, try to take a team that, uh, you know, unfortunately finished at the bottom of the standings last year and move them all the way up. Um, So I'm excited to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about that, the the group building part of it, because uh, you know, this is a challenge that people face all over the world, not just in sports, but outside of work, outside of sports, when they want to get into analytics, how do they go about it? How do you build a group? What's the, what's the right sequence? What are the kinds of people you want to bring together? What are the considerations? So can you talk us through a little bit what you've done so far and how you've thought about it? Yeah, well, let, uh, let's, uh, let's go Tarantino style. We'll start at the end. And, you know, we ended up hiring two people. Uh, we hired a data, data scientist, uh, Dominic Gallimini, 
whose background was uh, he was working at a, a third party data provider called Staffleets. And we hired Matt Barlow, who um, has a, a really interesting background. He worked um, at a hedge fund for some for some time, but you know, more relevant, he uh, worked for the National Hockey League for a few years, and most recently worked for the Houston Rockets of the NBA. Uh, and so we brought him in as a data engineer. Mm-hmm. So Sam, tell us what a data engineer does. We, we, most people, when they think about these sports analytics, they hear about like. You know, did John Harbaugh go for another fourth down? So somebody ran a model for fourth downs. What does the data engineer do? Why is it? Why is that the number two hire you you make when you start an organization? Yeah, I, well, traditionally, I guess some people would say that the data engineer does all of the not so fun stuff. So the you know working on um, getting all of the data from all the various sources that we have access to bringing it into our internal systems, processing it, and, uh, you know, helping um, deliver it to the the data scientists who are doing the quote unquote, the fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, what's great about Matt in particular is that he has experience on both sides, uh, doing the data engineering, the back end type of work, and the, you know, more front end data presentation, data analysis work. Um, mm-hmm. So he's able to sort of wear multiple hats, which was one of the reasons that um, you know, he was a sought after candidate, uh, for, for several jobs around the league. And, um, we were really excited to bring him in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when you're talking about kind of the type of people you're looking for, I could imagine two types of kind of two, two different sort of directions that people could funnel into hockey analytics front. One's the, obviously the people that like live, grew up living and breathing hockey, super passionate about that sport specifically, and then have gotten into analytics kind of later in life. Or, or you could just be poaching people from other sports that are already really into analytics and have a lot of experience in other sports with analytics and bringing them over and getting them passionate about hockey. Do you have a preferred kind of, do you have a preferred funnel or are, you know, basically, or, or, or kind of do you try and grab both types of people? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, for these two hires, it was important to me that we had people who uh, understood the sport and, and had that domain knowledge just because with where our department is at this moment, like we're sort of rebuilding everything from scratch. And so having people that could, that really understood what, what the state of the art was um, both in the public sphere and in the private sphere um, and would be able to sort of hit the ground running without, you know, much uh, um, in the way of teaching needing, needed from me, uh, that was really important. Uh, but I think what you're seeing in sports like baseball, for example, is a trend of, you know, once the uh, first few hires are made within an analytics department, um, the next people who, who are hired, you know, the focus is much more on skill sets and, you know, people who can bring in experience with things like spatiotemporal modeling, um, working with that type of data, which is so common across pro sports right now. Um, those are the types of backgrounds that, um, I think are, are starting to become a lot more common that the teams are looking for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sam building, building this out, a couple questions come to mind beyond the hiring one, you just alluded to building everything from scratch. So you were with the penguins for six years. It's something, something That's like right. that. So it's yep. a, a yep. lot to invest. And in. so I, 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 I suspect most people don't realize how much. What a central role the kind of database data systems play 
in the analytics life in a professional sports franchise. It's kind of, you know, you guys build this thing out and then you're trying to do it in a way that the people on the other side actually find useful. And so that they'll come and they'll get information and they'll get the information you want them to have and they want that they want. And so building that system, whatever it is, seems really, really important. And I think if you're not in the building, you don't appreciate it. So you can talk, you talk a little bit about, you probably can't talk in a lot of detail about what you had to leave behind in Pittsburgh, but I can imagine after having built something like that for six years, and then you're like, okay, well, upside is I learned a few things. So can you talk to us about the role of these systems and how you're thinking about it as you build one from scratch after walking away from one you invested in for six years? Yeah. Well, the way I like to think of it is you're trying to, everything you do, you're trying to open up as much time in the future so that you can handle the more one-off requests from coaches, scouts, GMs. Uh, you, you want your time to be as free as possible to answer those questions. And so you don't want to be babysitting your, your data ingest and modeling system too much. And so this was actually one of, it's a, it's a great question because it's, it was actually one of the interview questions that we asked um, all of our candidates was, how would you um, automate the model building process for, you know, different tools that we use for player and team evaluation? Um, and there's a there's an interesting interplay there between um, the actual statistical modeling where, you know, if a model changes, say, say the coefficients of some linear model change within some uh, epsilon range, um, you know, how much is so much of a change that then we need to subsequently go back and update, um, you know, all of our uh, player statistics that are derivative of those models. And so like we, we ask these types of questions to, the, to all of our candidates to, you know, in part to get a feel for, um, you know, what they knew, but in part to get ideas, you know, because I don't think there's a really well-defined way of, of um, you know, or, or at least like well-accepted way of doing this. Um, so let, let me, I think let me, everybody let me, has their own solution. Let me interrupt you real quick, just to make sure I understand what you said. It's fascinating, actually. You're saying, look, we 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 want to value a player. Let's say we want to value, keep an eye on the value of players across the whole league. So we have a model for that value. And that model has a handful of inputs, maybe a lot of inputs, each of which has a weight on it. We know it's imperfect. And so we keep on running our model. We keep on trying to improve the model. But in the meantime, we've produced these valuations of players all around the league that every night is being run. And so we have a continuous ranked list of the value. I'm making all this up, of course. But meantime, yeah. your model's improving and you're refining it. And maybe you've got an analyst or an intern trying to improve. And, and then they find out, oh my God, that coefficient is really different now. And you're saying, how different does it have to be before you go back and change that nightly report you're running that draws on those coefficients? Do I have it right? Yeah. It is. So just for example, you know, imagine you're working in the NFL and, you know, you have your expected points model or your win probability model. And then, you know, you update that after every game. Um, but there's also some sheet that ends up in the head coach's hands that says <laughs> you should go for it on fourth down in these situations. Well, what if the sheet changes because of the model changing? When should you tell the coach um, that he needs to update his thinking? Like there's a there's a trade-off there. You don't want the the information to be devalued, but you also want the information to be as accurate as possible. And so there's all these really interesting questions that kind of tie into the human decision-making aspect, the modeling aspect, and then the, you know, the data engineering aspect of things where you, you, you want everything to be running smoothly and automated. It actually echoes the conversation we've had about the CDC. So we open our show with COVID conversations and We've talked a lot recently with experts who are frustrated, and obviously the public is frustrated with the CDC. Like, 
they don't revise anything for a while and then they revise continuously. And what is optimal revision? And you're, you put, you're talking about, you want to maintain the trust of the decision makers, my gosh. And so there is some kind of optimal revision, super interesting. I hadn't thought about it, Sam, but speaking of trust, this is another, this is a more, this is a sexier question than the, than the database. Though I know the database is really important. Um, what have you done since June or whenever you arrived to build credibility in the organization? And again, this is an exceedingly general challenge that's faced in the analytics community in and outside of sports. You're hired in, build out the analytics, um, and simultaneously, you've got to build credibility with the people who you want to be listening to you. You want to have a voice at the table. So what does that look like for you so far? Yeah, well, I mean, two things. First, I think you have to ask questions and you have to listen. Um, and if people are saying that they're they're interested in this particular aspect of team play or player performance or whatever it would be, um, you know, you need to uh, be receptive to that and, and um, you know, provide them with the information that they need in order to um, help help them make decisions and then help you build up that trust. Um, but, you know, number two is, you know, the main thing I've been doing is trying to rebuild, uh, you know, six, six years worth of work in six months so that we could uh, actually make the uh, big decisions that are, that are necessary for our hockey club. I mean, we had a, a number of big uh, decisions to make since I started and, you know, a few more that are um, coming down the line. And, uh, you know, so that's been a big challenge, and that's that's part of the reason that the the hiring process was so important um, that we bring in people who could hit the ground running. Just because, um, you know, there's a lot of it takes a lot to to rebuild six years of work uh, mm -hmm. as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sam, let's talk a little bit about hockey and hockey analytics. As start to start with, can can you kind of position where you believe hockey fits relative to the other sports on? sports analytics. So I, I tend to think of this as two important dimensions. One is just how tractable the game is. You know, baseball is infinitely more tractable than all the other major sports because it's discreet and independent and you guys are playing continuously and very interdependently. Um, but then the other dimension that seems to matter a lot when it comes to how advanced sports analytics is in the sport is culture and Here's where I think NBA has had an advantage because of ownership more than anything that you've had, you have, you've had more ownership turnover in basketball and the new owners have come in from relatively sophisticated industries like finance or tech. And so they're already inclined towards analytics. And so I, I and because owner, so much flows down from ownership, a lot of the culture that impedes or facilitates the use of analytics comes from those guys. And I think that's helped the NBA because they've got a, they've got about the same problem you do in terms of they don't have as much, they have more scoring. And so you've got this nice dependent measure, which is helpful. So you've got a bigger challenge, but kind of in the same ballpark. Anyway, that's one possible way of thinking about it. Does that resonate with you? And if not, what dimensions do you think matter? And where would you put hockey? Give us an update and we can set aside Buffalo. Let's not get you in trouble with, you're with the with your team, but the other franchises, the industry as a whole. How would you characterize them relative to the other major sports? Yeah, well, I, I think you brought up a really good point about the NBA. I think um, ownership does play an important role in these conversations. Um, the other thing about the NBA, though, is that um, you know I think it's inherently a more predictable sport than uh, than pretty much any other of the the major yeah. pro sports, but mm -hmm. especially hockey. Um, and so that, you know, the combination of, 
you know, the, the predictability in nature in the NBA and then the history of having the data, um, you know, the more advanced versions of data, like tracking data and event level data that the NBA has had for, you know, going on a decade now. Mm -hmm. um, so the NBA is very, that combination of things makes the NBA very uh, advanced in terms of what they're able to do mm -hmm. uh, on a day-to-day -day basis within organizations. In hockey, you know, we, we're, we're behind, but we're behind because, um, you know, the tracking data and the event level data is relatively new compared to other sports. And so, um, you know, there's still a lot of development happening there. Um, Culture-wise, I'm not sure there's a big difference um, between the NHL and, and other sports, maybe with the exception of baseball. I think in the end, people want to win games and they're receptive to whatever is going to increase your chances of winning games. And so if that means, you know, more objective analysis of an opponent or of, of your own team, then I think people are very receptive to that. Now, Sam, that's a pretty, that's a pretty little picture. Come on. Really? Is that, that are you being politic here? So I, I don't, this is one of the reasons I'm asking is because I don't know, but I certainly wouldn't characterize NFL that way. And I, and I probably wouldn't characterize baseball that way even though baseball is pretty far down this road and i would be surprised i mean i, I don't have that many co hockey conversations I, the guys and the guys i talked to are pretty forward thinking but i have sat on panels with you know people like brian burke who are like you know analytics show me your ring you know that that kind of conversation which is i mean not it's pretty familiar pretty familiar across sports so if if i take you at your word then i feel like well maybe hockey is a little more open-minded than i thought they would be yeah, well, I mean, I guess it depends on what specifically you're talking about. Like, I think when it comes to player evaluation, uh, there's been a big influx of, of analytics, for example, at the draft and at free agency and, and that, you know, those kinds of aspects of, of hockey decision making. Um, if you're talking about on the ice, I would say there's been less, but there's been less because we haven't had the data to really um, make substantive impacts on on ice decision making um mm -hmm. similar to what has been done in a sport like basketball mm -hmm. for example mm -hmm. all right and i think it's i think it's also worth mentioning i i think i mean sam kind of alluded to this i think too in my in my mind you know i think there's there's some challenges of the actual kind of you know the 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 flow of the cocky game that do make it a little bit harder to kind of i, I mean in basketball you do not have quite as much rapid movement and you have so many scoring events that kind of the model, like being able to link kind of individual kind of micro things in the course of the game to scoring events is that much easier in basketball, just as a, I think an exercise compared to hockey, where you have very fast play pace play, a lot of interactions between players and the, and, and the kind of, you know, in, in, in space and also trying to link it to the outcomes you're interested in. Is, is very difficult. And I guess, you know, Sam, maybe you can kind of talk a little bit about that sort of like that issue of like the sort of sparsity of outcomes and how you guys, you know, how you deal with that. Is it just kind of trying to create intermediary outcomes or what, what, what kind of, uh, what, what are the sort of main kind of ways in which you're trying to use, I guess, like this new tracking data to kind of, to, to, to get some insights into the sport that might kind of help advance sort of the port, you know, I guess the, uh, the culture of analytics in general. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, in basketball, there's there's 200 points scored in a game. In hockey, there are something like six, you know, so it's just it's generally harder to uh, evaluate what's happening moment to moment in hockey. Um, but beyond that, like there, there's other um, 
there's other nuances of the sport that I think, um, you know, so, so take basketball, for example, uh, or, or even soccer, like there's much, there's many more opportunities in those sports to run things like set plays, right. Where you can try to design a scheme, whether it's based on data or based on, um, you know, video or strategy or, or whatever you want to call it, um, to try to increase your chances of scoring on a given possession. Um, in hockey, I would say, you know, teams don't find themselves in situations where a set play is possible uh, very frequently. I mean, it really only happens on the power play or on face-offs. Um, whereas in basketball, you know, you probably have an opportunity to do that on just about every uh, possession, you know, that's not a fast break. Mm-hmm. And by the way, on face-offs, that only comes your way half the time or whatever. So even that is diminished. Um, but I, power play is is a that's an interesting analogy, and it speaks to why it's one of the many reasons why it's such an important and distinct part of the game. But I think listening to you, Sam, you're, I'm 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 getting more and more sympathetic for the difficulty of analytics in, in hockey and the, the differences between hockey and the other sports and how how complicated it is. Adi's been trying to jump in here for a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been trying to catch up on hockey over the years to not great uh, impact, but you know, try to learn more. One of the things that I think really fascinating about hockey is this this idea of these these shifts that come in with the players come in and out because it's so taxing, um, which asks me, leads to the question, I guess, is that seems like an amazing opportunity for analysts to figure yeah. out what combinations and and how and and uh, in how much rest and and also it does seem to segue a lot with sort of the performance people, which which they think a lot about like like fatigue and and uh, maximum output performance. And there's lots of data on that. Is is this? Am I just uh, am I missing something, or is this something that, that we're actually trying to work on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is it's an it's actually a really interesting statistical problem to try to to decompose what the effect is of a single player being out there for um, an extended shift versus, um, you know, all five players being out there for an extended amount of time, because mm-hmm. you have, there's so many confounders that are, that are present here. Um, so just as an example, you know, uh, you might be, if you're, if you're a player who's been on the ice for you know a minute and a half, it could just be because you are, uh, you have the puck or, or something like that, or because you're a defender and you're defending the person, um, who had the puck and it put you in a position where you weren't able to change. But then there's these other issues on, on the other side of it where the shorter shifts tend to happen because uh, not because players are choosing to exit the ice surface, but because there's a, a stoppage in play and coaches are asking them to cho- to leave the ice surface. So there's a, there's a separate question about player decision-making and, and when uh, they should leave the ice and, and how much that affects um performance whenever it's a whenever they actually have an opportunity to to make that decision versus when um they're being you know forced whether the decision is being made for them Mm -hmm. and i just kind of as part of that like i i don't know how much there is in coaching analytics but like how much i don't know how much is there real heterogeneity across coaches in terms of that like like are there certain coaches that are well known for like, you know, really wanting to short shift player like players or something like that, or, or is it kind of like, is, is there, is, is that so idiosyncratic? Cause it really depends on the talent level they have on the ice. There are definitely coaches who do it more than others. I don't, I wouldn't say it's well known though. So I, I don't, I typically don't hear this kind of thing being discussed, although there's there, uh, I think you can pretty clearly find it in the data if you know where to look. 
Sam, if we if we if we ask you for our little fantasy hockey project, how, how many times do we have to get you on here before you run the fantasy project for us? When 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 you have access to tracking data, we want to know how how differently the players exert themselves in various stages. Because we we always talk when everyone talks about this, it's like playoff overtime hockey is about as good as sports gets. And it feels like everything just kind of steps up a notch. And with player track, more so than you can, especially because it's such a fast game compared to other sports, it feels like that change is more discreet than you observe in other sports. And it feels like that ought to be observable now, given the tracking data. So when, when you eventually look at this and let us know how big that effect is and whether it's true and how it varies by team, and I mean, do you, have, do you share the same intuition we, we have on that? Absolutely. And I, like, I, just to give you one little tidbit of information that you might find interesting is that um, the biggest difference that we see in, in terms of how much players are moving really is just dependent on when they have the puck versus when they don't have the puck. So like a lot of times, if you're, if you're just watching a game, you'll see a player who, you know, it looks like he's pretty gassed in the defensive zone and, and not putting the effort in or, or something like that. And then the puck, you know, is, uh, will be within 10 feet of him and he'll, he'll all of a sudden have this burst of energy where he's, you know, trying to take it up ice. And, and so we found there, there actually is a, a true effect there of, you know, when, when players are in possession, the, um, the speed with which they're skating or the exertion level or however you want to frame it uh, tends to shoot up uh, pretty dramatically, which probably shouldn't be surprising, but it's, it's interesting just to see just how much it shoots up in the data. Right, right. Uh, another technical question, soccer analytics these days, they have some of the same problems you do um, with very few scoring events and continuous play, interdependent, all that stuff. With motion tracking, they're doing a lot around space and space creation and gravity and all of these concepts. Presumably all of that applies to hockey as well. And even though you're on a smaller surface, you've still got, I mean, they're, they're still having to work with space. Your players are trying to create it and defenders are trying to take it away. Is that one of the most important frontiers in hockey analytics right now? Or is that the right way to think about it? If that's what soccer, if soccer is a little bit ahead and that's what they're worrying about, is it safe to say you guys are going to be worrying about that or probably already are? Well, I, we're, we're definitely worried about it. I think that the degree to which, um, something like space creation, uh, especially off puck space creation, the degree to which that matters in hockey is much less than in soccer. Okay. And I think that's just, I'm hypothesizing here because it's, it's hard to really figure out exactly what the reason for this would be. But, um, my guess is that it's because in soccer teams can willingly defend a specific player a lot more easily than they can in hockey, where just by nature of the sport, you know, the pucks in transition up ice, um, defenders can't very easily choose which, which, you know, a, a offending player is going to be, they're, they're going to cover, um, you know, not as easily as they can in soccer. And so that aspect of space creation in soccer, I think, um, you know, is partially because the, the defense is choosing to defend specific players in, in specific ways. And I don't think the opportunity to do that is as present in hockey, um, at least not in all situations. Mm -hmm. yeah and i'll just kind of add on top of that i think it's also i think a a lot more complicated in hockey even than soccer i mean i'm fascinated by space creation in both sports but i and that and i do think if you could kind of 
try and capture space creation or, or, or closing, you know, how much you close on a person, et cetera, in, in hockey would provide a lot of insight. It's just extra complicated because I, in soccer, I think they can basically use essentially the, the just like, you know, the, kind of the assumption that like a particular point on the field is that person. And the amount of space they create around them in this large surface is essentially could be approximated by a point or a little interval around a point. In hockey, you've got this stick that you can swing around and extend <laughs> in all kinds of directions. And like trying to kind of try to estimate the amount of space that you create or that you restrict when your stick is such a big part of that. I, I mean, A, it would require data that actually you know, measures that, you know, tracks this, your stick, the end of your stick, in addition to the person, but also like, you know, the, the kind of modeling you'd have to do to kind of build that in is just sounds very complicated to me. So I don't know how much you yeah. guys are kind of thinking about stuff like that. No, it, it's a great point. And I think um, it, this is one area where we're limited by what data is actually available to us. So, I mean, the, the chip that is in uh, the RFID tag that is, that or, that players have are, they're attached to the shoulder pad. And so we don't actually have ground truth data of where a player's stick is positioned. You, you know, you would need to do something like, um, you know, pose estimation with the computer vision algorithm or, mm-hmm. or something like that in order to figure it out. Um, and, you know, more than that, we, we don't even have the orientation of the player. So we, we don't know ground mm-hmm. truth if they're skating forwards or backwards because there's only one chip um, in the shoulder pads. And so, it makes it for, uh, it's a challenging um, analysis problem, but it uh, makes it so that, you know, we have to sort of wide net our guess of, uh, you know, where, where the stick is at, at any particular point in time. Man, by the end of the show, I'm going to be convinced that hockey is the single hardest sport to bring analytics to out there. We just come up with reason after reason. Speaking of which, there's also this question of predictability. Um, how should we think even as fans about, hockey and how should we forecast what's going to happen with hockey when as I understand it there's almost zero correlation between a player's shooting percentage year one to year two there's very little correlation in goalie's performance year to year and yet it seems like goalie performance is sufficient to take a team you know all the way to the finals if not the Stanley Cup so how is that affecting the way you do your analytics or the way you think about this or even how the club thinks about it it seems like a it seems like a hard thing to get your head around. Yeah. So, I mean, that was, that was one of the early findings in hockey analytics uh, that I think sort of spurred the whole hockey analytics movement was that, um, you know, teams could go on these hot streaks where their goalie was performing well, or, um, you know, that they were getting the right bounces and the puck was going in, you know, players were converting on their shots at really high percentages, um, you know, all of that. But, um, the more process oriented measures, which in hockey, you know, typically are boiled down to, um, the rate of shots for and the rate of shots against, um, it, you know, if those process oriented measures were not, uh, you know, keeping up with, uh, with the more luck driven measures, um, you know, your team was probably in for a downfall. And, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that happened in, in a few playoff series where a team that was maybe overperforming in the regular season, um, you know, had a, had a playoff collapse or, or something like that. And that, mm-hmm. that was one of the reasons that, you know, hockey became, uh, hockey analytics became um, more popular. And I think from the fans' perspective now, um, you know, you should you should enjoy it while you're winning. First of all, uh, we <laughs> right. want sports to to be entertained, and so you should be entertained. But um, I think just keeping an eye on um, on shooter or goalie hot streaks is something that you know um, you should be aware of. And 
from a management perspective, you know, it, what it really boils down to is just not overreacting to, um, you know, a, a, a streak of good shooting or a streak of bad goaltending or, or something like that. Um, and try to be a little bit more even keeled and look at the, um, you know, the underlying numbers that are a little bit more um, indicative of, of how you'll perform in the future. Do you think, where do you think management is on that around the league? Or, or do most people kind of understand that at this point? Or is, I know it's hard to do, even if you do understand it, but how, how widely bought into that do you think the league is? I, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head is that it, it is hard to do. I think most people do understand it and it's, it's hard to um, it's hard to make the decision to do nothing. You know, if let's say you have a really good team and um, you know, your team has a disappointing playoff exit, it's hard to make the decision to not do anything about it. Right. Like there's, there's this, um, I mean, I think that's like a, a very common cognitive bias that, that we all have, you know, we look for reasons that uh, results occur, even if the reasons, um, you know, might not exist in truth, you know, or we overfit to these small samples of playoff series and then try to address the, the issue that we faced in that, um, you know, in that small sample of games. Um, but, you know, I, I think pretty much the whole league is aware of it at this point in time. It's just a question of who um, can, can, you know, work off of those ideas and right. put them into practice. Right, right, right. Um, Sam, we're going to have to let you go, but we we want to talk a little bit about, want to hear your take on the league so far. Shane's always pulling for somebody out of the West to do well, and it looks like they're they're not as convincing so far this year. We're not quite to the halfway point. I, I had I, I had hopes. I, I guess I, one question I would actually have with that is how far into a season do you when you do you decide that certain teams are legit or not? And, and kind of like, 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 you know, for example, I got, even though I said I wouldn't, I got myself super excited about this battle of Alberta that was setting up, you know, <laughs> the Oilers and flames are both at the top of the West and like rolling. And it was like, you know, a couple months ago, I'm like, yeah, okay. That's probably enough time. They're legit. And since then they've nosedived back down to kind of probably where their, our preseason expectations were to them. So yeah, I guess how, how, far do you have to fall in a season to see legit things and what kind of legit trends are you kind of, you know, looking at in this season? Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm in the Andrew Thomas school of thought, which is that I, I reject the question about the, the dichotomy of you're either, you know, it's, it's too early or it's, it's too late or, or whatever. Now, now we have reached the threshold. I mean, I think the answer is just, we, we update accordingly after every game, you know what I mean? It's the sort of boring, uh, technical answer that there really is no there's never a, a point where we're all of a sudden you know we cross some threshold and now we know how good a team is you know we're, we're always learning more every day and that's how we approach it so it's always good to throw but a basic answer to a basic yeah. questioner yeah <laughs> what, what's really interesting though is like with this season specifically is that um you know just by the way things are shaking out that the the east playoffs are um you know the top eight teams are um you know, have a, a pretty sizable gap over the non-playoff teams. Whereas in the West, uh, things are a little bit more wide open right now. And that's something we don't typically see at this point. And we're not even at the halfway point of the season. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a very unusual way that the standings are, are shaking out in the East specifically. Mm-hmm. Give us one storyline for the, for the casual hockey fan mid season, there ought to be something out there, a team that you think is, overperforming and not not likely to bear up or maybe a team that you think is stronger than their record suggests so far and might emerge in the second half of the season or something else um well well one one interesting storyline i would say is you know 
the, so the structure of the playoffs in hockey is interesting in that you pretty much play out of your division, or at least the top three teams in each division are definitely playing out of their division. And then there's a wild card system to see who the division winner plays. But um, there's a good chance that in the Atlantic division specifically, um, you know, we have this situation where according to some public websites, you know, four of the top five teams in the league are from the Atlantic division. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you trust what these public, uh, websites are, are saying, that would mean that, you know, four of the top five teams are going to play each other in the first round of the playoffs, which would be, um, sort of unprecedented. And it would make for a really interesting first round from a fan's perspective, but, uh, you know, probably from those teams perspective, I, I can't imagine they're very happy about it. So it's a, it's a very interesting, uh, situation that, um, could, could bear out. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of hockey left to play here in the regular season, so, We'll see where it goes, but uh, that's mm-hmm. something that, that I find particularly interesting. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, listen, Sam, thanks, man. Uh, appreciate you making the time. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Good luck with what you got going on up there in Buffalo. Um, thank you for taking the time with us this afternoon. Yeah, and thanks for having me on. And I just wanted to say thanks for, for doing your weekly COVID segments. I find the discussion to be refreshingly objective. So thank you. <laughs> well, you're, you're, we, we love hearing that, Sam. Thank you. You very much, very much appreciate that. That's Sam Venture, VP Research, Hockey Research. There's more to that title, but I know it's VP Hockey Research. Buffalo Sabres moved up there from six years with Pittsburgh Penguins. Always a pleasure to talk to Sam. That has been another four quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We do it every week here on SiriusXM for the whole crew. Eric Bradlow in absentia, Shane Jensen here all day long, Adi Weiner all day long. This has been Cade Massey. For the boss man, Matty Datz, for the associate boss man, Dion Simpkins. Appreciate you guys listening. Come back and join us next time between now and then. Enjoy your sports. <laughs>